Book Two, Chapter Thirteen of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Thirteen. The next day was Sunday. Langham, who was as depressed and homesick as ever, with a certain new spice of restlessness not altogether intelligible to himself thrown in, could only brace himself to the prospect by the determination to take the English rural Sunday as the subject of severe scientific investigation. He would do it thoroughly. So he donned a black coat and went to church with the rest. There, in spite of his boredom with the whole proceeding, Robert's old tutor was a good deal more interested by Robert's sermon than he had expected to be. It was on the character of David, and there was a note in it, a note of historical imagination, a power of sketching in a background of circumstance, and of biting into the mind of the listener, as it were, by a detail or an epithet, which struck Langham as something new in his experience of Ellesmere. He followed it at first as one might watch a game of skill, enjoying the intellectual form of it, and counting the good points. But by the end he was not a little carried away. The peroration was undoubtedly very moving, very intimate, very modern, and Langham, up to a certain point, was extremely susceptible to oratory, as he was to music and acting. The critical judgment, however, at the root of him, kept coolly repeating as he stood watching the people defiled out of the church. This sort of thing will go down, will make a mark. Osmere is at the beginning of a career. In the afternoon, Robert, who was feeling deeply guilty towards his wife, in that he had been forced to leave so much of the entertainment of Langham to her, asked his old friend to come for him to the school at four o'clock and take him for a walk between two engagements. Langham was punctual, and Robert carried him off first to see the Sunday cricket, which was in full swing. During the past year the young rector had been developing a number of outdoor capacities which were probably always dormant in his Earlsmere blood, the blood of generations of country gentlemen which had never had full opportunity before. He talked of fishing, as Kingsley might have talked of it, and indeed with constant quotations from Kingsley, and his cricket, which had been good enough at Oxford to get him into his college eleven, had stood him in specially good stead with the Millwell villagers. That his play was not elegant they were not likely to find out. His bowling they set small store by, but his batting was of a fine, slashing, superior sort, which soon carried the Millwell club to a much higher position among the clubs of the neighbourhood than it had ever yet aspired to occupy. The rector had no time to play on Sundays, however, and after they had hung about the green a little while, he took his friend over to the Workmen's Institute, which stood at the edge of it. He explained that the Institute had been the last achievement of the agent before Henslow, a man who had done his duty to the estate according to his lights, and to whom it was owing that those parts of it, at any rate which were most in the public eye, were still in fair condition. The Institute was now in bad repair, and too small for the place. "'But catch that man doing anything for us!' exclaimed Robert hotly. "'He would hardly mend the roof now, merely, I believe, to spite me. "'But come and see my new naturalist's club.' And he opened the Institute's door. Langham followed, in the temper of one getting up a subject for examination. Poor Robert! His labour and his enthusiasm deserved a more appreciative eye. He was wrapped up in his club, which had been the great success of his first year, and he dragged Langham through it all, not indeed sympathetic creature that he was, without occasional qualms. But after all, he would say to himself indignantly, I must do something with him. Langham, indeed, behaved with resignation. He looked at the collections for the year, and was quite ready to take it for granted that they were extremely creditable. 
Into the old-fashioned window-sills glazed compartments had been fitted, and these were now fairly filled with specimens, with eggs, butterflies, moths, beetles, fossils, and what not. A case of stuffed tropical birds presented by Robert stood in the centre of the room. Another, containing the birds of the district, was close by. On a table farther on stood two large open books, which served as records of observations on the part of members of the club. In one, which was scrawled over with mysterious hieroglyphs, any one might write what he would. In the other, only such facts and remarks as had passed the gauntlet of a club meeting were recorded in Robert's neatest hand. On the same table stood jars full of strange creatures, tadpoles and water larvae of all kinds, over which Robert hung now absorbed, poking among them with a straw, while Langham, to whom only the generalizations of science were congenial, stood by and mildly scoffed. As they came out, a great loutish boy, who had evidently been hanging about waiting for the rector, came up to him, boorishly touched his cap, and then, taking a cardboard box out of his pocket, opened it with infinite caution, something like a tremor of emotion passing over his gnarled countenance. The rector's eyes glistened. "'Hello! I say, Owen, where in the name of fortune did you get that? You lucky fellow! Come in and let's look it out!' And the two plunged back into the club together, leaving Langham to the philosophic and patient contemplation of the village green, its geese, its donkeys, and its surrounding fringe of houses. He felt that, quite indisputably, life would have been better worth living if, like Robert, he could have taken a passionate interest in rare moths or common ploughboys. But nature having denied him the possibility, there was small use in grumbling. Presently the two naturalists came out again, and the boy went off, bearing his treasure with him. "'Lucky dog!' said Robert, turning his friend into a country road leading out of the village. "'He's found one of the rarest moths of the district. Such a hero he'll be in the club to-morrow night!' It's extraordinary what a rational interest has done for that fellow. I nearly fought him in public last winter. And he turned to his friend with a laugh, and yet with a little quick look of feeling in the grey eyes. Magnificent, but not war, said Langham dryly. I wouldn't have given much for your chances against those shoulders. Oh, I don't know. I should have had a little science on my side, which counts for a great deal. We turned him out of the club for brutality towards the old grandmother he lives with. Turned him out in public such a scene. I shall never forget the boy's face. It was like a corpse, and the eyes burning out of it. He made for me, but the others closed up round, and we got him put out. Hard lines on the grandmother, remarked Langham. She thought so, poor old thing. She left her cottage that night, thinking he would murder her, and went to a friend. At the end of a week he came into the friend's house, where she was alone in bed. She cowered under the bedclothes, she told me, expecting him to strike her instead of which he threw his wages down beside her and gruffly invited her to come home. He wouldn't do her no mischief. Everybody dissuaded her, but the plucky old thing went. A week or two afterwards she sent for me, and I found her crying. She was sure the lad was ill. He spoke to nobody at his work. "'Lord, sir,' she said, "'it do remind me, when he sits glowering at nights, of those folks in the Bible, when the devil's inside him, kept at tearing him. But he's like a newborn babe to me, sir. Never does me no harm.' and it do go to my heart, sir, to see how poor he do take his victuals. So I made tracks for that lad, said Robert, his eyes kindling, his whole frame dilating. I found him in the fields one morning. I have seldom lived through so much in half an hour. In the evening I walked him up to the club, and we readmitted him, and since then the boy has been like one clothed and in his right mind. If there's any trouble in the club, I set him on, and he generally puts it right. 
and when I was laid up with a chill in the spring, and the poor fellow came trudging up every night after his work to ask for me, well, never mind, but it gives one a good glow at one's heart to think about it. The speaker threw back his head impulsively, as though defying his own feeling. Langham looked at him curiously. The pastoral temper was a novelty to him, and the strong development of it in the undergraduate of his Oxford recollections had its interest. "'A quarter to six, said Robert, as on their return from their walk they were descending a low wooded hill above the village, and the church clock rang out. "'I must hurry, or I shall be late for my story-telling.' "'Story-telling?' said Langham, with a half-exasperated shrug. "'What next? You clergy are too inventive by half.' Robert laughed a trifle bitterly. "'I can't congratulate you on your epithets,' he said, thrusting his hands far into his pockets. "'Good heavens, if we were, if we were inventive as a body, the church wouldn't be where she is in the rural districts. My story-telling is the simplest thing in the world. I began it in the winter with the object of somehow or other getting at the imagination of these rustics. Force them, for only half an hour, to live someone else's life. It's the one thing worth doing with them. That's what I've been aiming at.' I told my stories all the winter—Shakespeare, Don Quixote, Dumas, heaven knows what—and on the whole it answers best. But now we are reading The Talisman. Come and inspect us, unless you are a purist about your Scot. None other of the immortals have such longueurs as he, and we cut him freely." "'By all means,' said Langham, "'lead on.' And he followed his companion without repugnance. After all, there was something contagious in so much youth and hopefulness. The storytelling was held in the Institute. A group of men and boys were hanging round the door when they reached it. The two friends made their way through, greeted in the dumb, friendly English fashion on all sides, and Langham found himself in a room half filled with boys and youths, a few grown men who had just put their pipes out, lounging at the back. Langham not only endured, but enjoyed the first part of the hour that followed. Robert was an admirable reader, as most enthusiastic imaginative people are. He was a master of all those arts of look and gesture which make a spoken story telling and dramatic, and Langham marvelled with what energy, after his hard day's work and with another service before him, he was able to throw himself into such a hors d'oeuvre as this. He was reading to-night one of the most perfect scenes that even the Wizard of the North had ever conjured, the scene in the tent of Richard Lionheart, when the disguised slave saves the life of the King, and Richard first suspects his identity. As he read on, his arms resting on the high desk in front of him, and his eyes, full of infectious enjoyment, travelling from the book to his audience, surrounded by human beings whose confidence he had won, and whose lives he was brightening from day to day, he seemed to Langham the very type and model of a man who has found his métier, found his niche in the world, and the best means of filling it. If to attain to an adequate and masterly expression of oneself be the aim of life, Robert was fast achieving it. This parish of twelve hundred souls gave him now all the scope he asked. It was evident that he felt his work to be rather above than below his deserts. He was content, more than content, to spend ability which would have distinguished him in public life, or carried him far to the front in literature, on the civilising of a few hundred of England's rural poor. The future might bring him worldly success. Langmore thought it must, and would. Clergymen of Robert's stamp are rare among us but if so, it would be in response to no conscious effort of his. Here, in the country living, he had so long dreaded and put from him, lest it should tax his young energies too lightly. He was happy, deeply, abundantly happy, at peace with God, 
at one with man. Happy. Langham, sitting at the outer corner of one of the benches, by the open door, gradually ceased to listen, started on other lines of thought by this realisation, warm, stimulating, provocative, of another man's happiness. Outside the shadows lengthened across the green. Groups of distant children or animals passed in and out of the golden light spaces. The patches of heather left here and there glowed as the sunset touched them. Every now and then his eye travelled vaguely past a cottage garden, gay with the pinks and carmines of the floxes, into the cool browns and bluish greys of the raftered room beyond. Babies toddled across the road, with stooping mothers in their train. The whole air and scene seemed to be suffused with suggestions of the pathetic expansiveness and helplessness of human existence, which generation after generation is still so vulnerable, so confiding, so eager. Life after life flowers out from the darkness and sinks back into it again. And in the interval, what agony, what disillusion! All the apparatus of a universe that men may know what it is to hope and fail, to win and lose. Happy, in this world where men sit and hear each other groan. His friend's confidence only made Langham as melancholy as Job. What was it based on? In the first place, on Christianity, on the passionate acceptance of an exquisite fairy tale, said the dreaming spectator to himself, which at the first honest challenge of the critical sense withers in our grasp. That challenge Elsmere has never given it, and in all probability never will. No, a man sees none the straighter for having a wife he adores and a profession that suits him between him and unpleasant facts. In the evening, Langham, with the usual reaction of his afternoon self against his morning self, felt that wild horses should not take him to church again, and with a longing for something purely mundane, he stayed at home with a volume of Montaigne, while apparently all the rest of the household went to evening service. After a warm day, the evening had turned cold and stormy. The west was streaked with jagged strips of angry cloud, the wind was rising in the trees, and the temperature had suddenly fallen so much that when Langham shut himself up in Robert's study, he did what he had been admonished to do in case of need, set a light to the fire, which blazed out merrily into the darkening room. Then he drew the curtains and threw himself down into Robert's chair with a sigh of sybaritic satisfaction. "'Good! Now for something that takes the world less naively,' he said to himself. This house is too virtuous for anything." He opened his Montaigne, and read on very happily for half an hour. The house seemed entirely deserted. "'All the servants gone, too,' he said presently, looking up and listening. "'Anybody who wants the spoons needn't trouble about me. I don't leave this fire.' And he plunged back again into his book. At last there was a sound of the swing-door which separated Robert's passage from the front hall, opening and shutting. Steps came quickly towards the study. The handle was turned, and there on the threshold stood Rose. He turned quickly round in his chair with a look of astonishment. She also started as she saw him. "'I did not know any one was in,' she said awkwardly, the colour spreading over her face. "'I came to look for a book.' She made a delicious picture as she stood framed in the darkness of the doorway, her long dress caught up round her in one hand, the other resting on the handle. A gust of some delicate perfume seemed to enter the room with her, and a thrill of pleasure passed through Langham's senses. "'Can I find anything for you?' he said, springing up. She hesitated a moment, 
then apparently made up her mind that it would be foolish to retreat, and, coming forward, she said, with an accent as coldly polite as she could make it, "'Pray don't disturb yourself. I know exactly where to find it.' She went up to the shelves where Robert kept his novels, and began running her fingers over the books, with slightly knitted brows and a mouth severely shut. Langham, still standing, watched her, and presently stepped forward. Um, "'You can't reach those upper shelves,' he said. "'Please let me.' He was already beside her, and she gave way. "'I want Charles Orchester,' she said, still forbiddingly. "'It ought to be there.' "'Oh, that queer musical novel. I know it quite well. No sign of it here.' and he ran over the shelves with the practice eye of one accustomed to deal with books. "'Robert must have lent it,' said Rose, with a little sigh. "'Never mind, please, it doesn't matter.' And she was already moving away. "'Try some other instead,' he said, smiling, his arm still outstretched. "'Robert has no lack of choice.' His manner had an animation and ease usually quite foreign to it. Rose stopped, and her lips relaxed a little. He's very nearly as bad as the novel-reading bishop, who was reduced at last to stealing the servant's family herald out of the kitchen cupboard, she said, a smile dawning. Langham laughed. Has he such an episcopal appetite for them? That accounts for the fact that when he and I begin to talk novels, I am always nowhere. I shouldn't suppose you ever read them, said Rose, obeying an irresistible impulse, and biting her lip the moment afterwards. Do you think that we poor people at Oxford are always condemned to works on the enclitic day? he asked, his fine eyes lit up with gaiety, and his head, of which the Greek outlines were ordinarily so much disguised by his stoop and hesitating look, thrown back against the books behind him. Natures like Langham's, in which the nerves are never normal, have their moments of felicity, balancing their weeks of timidity and depression. After his melancholy of the last two days, the tide of reaction had been mounting within him, and the sight of Rose had carried it to its height. She gave a little involuntary stare of astonishment. What had happened to Robert's silent and finicky friend? "'I know nothing of Oxford,' she said, a little primly, in answer to his question. "'I never was there, but I never was anywhere. I have seen nothing,' she added hastily, and, as Langham thought, bitterly. "'Except London, and the great world, and Madame de Forêt,' he answered, laughing. "'Is that so little?' She flashed a quick, defiant look at him as he mentioned Madame de Forêt, but his look was imperturbably kind and gay. She could not help softening towards him. What magic had passed over him? "'Do you know,' said Langham, moving, "'that you are standing in a draught, and that it has turned extremely cold?' For she had left the passage door wide open behind her, and as the window was partly opened, the curtains were swaying hither and thither, and her muslin dress was being blown in coils round her feet. "'So it has,' said Rose, shivering. "'I don't envy the church people. "'You haven't found me a book, Mr. Langham?' "'I will find you one in a minute, if you will come and read it by the fire,' he said, with his hand on the door. She glanced at the fire, and at him, irresolute. His breath quickened. She, too, had passed into another phase. Was it the natural effect of night, of solitude, of sex?' At any rate, she sank softly into the armchair opposite to that in which he had been sitting. "'Find me an exciting one, please.' Langham shut the door securely, and went back to the bookcase, his hand trembling a little as it passed along the books. He found Villette and offered it to her. She took it, opened it, 
and appeared deep in it at once. He took the hint and went back to his Montaigne. The fire crackled cheerfully. The wind outside made every now and then a sudden gusty onslaught on their silence, dying away again as abruptly as it had risen. Rose turned the pages of her book, sitting a little stiffly in her long chair, and Langham gradually began to find Montaigne impossible to read. He became instead more and more alive to every detail of the situation into which he had fallen. At last, seeing or imagining that the fire wanted attending to, he bent forward and thrust the poker into it. A burning curl fell on the hearth, and Rose hastily withdrew her foot from the fender and looked up. "'I am so sorry,' he interjected. "'Curls never do what you want them to do. Uh, are you very much interested in Villette?' "'Deeply,' said Rose, letting the book, however, drop on her lap. She lay back her head with a little sigh, which she did to her best to check halfway through. What ailed her to-night? She seemed wearied. For the moment there was no fight in her with anybody. Her music, her beauty, her mutinous mocking gaiety—these things had all worked on the man beside her. But this new softness, this touch of charges fatigue, was adorable. Charlotte Bronte wrote it out of her Brussels experience, didn't she? She resumed languidly. How sorry she must have been to come back to that dull home and that awful brother after such a break. There were reasons more than one that must have made her sorry to come back, said Langham reflectively. But how she pined for her wiles all through. I'm afraid you don't find your wiles as interesting as she found hers. His question and his smile startled her. Her first impulse was to take up the book again, as a hint to him that her likings were no concern of his. But something checked it, probably the new brilliancy of that look of his, which had suddenly grown so personal, so manly. Instead, Villette slid a little farther from her hand, and her pretty head still lay lightly back against the cushion. "'No, I don't find my wilds interesting at all,' she said forlornly. "'You are not fond of the people, as your sister is?' "'Fond of them?' cried Rose hastily. "'I should think not. And what is more, they don't like me. It's quite intolerable since Catherine left. I have so much more to do with them. My other sister and I have to do all the work. It's dreadful to have to work after somebody who has a genius for doing just what you do worst.' The young girl's hands fell across one another with a little impatient gesture. Langham had a moment of the most delightful compassion towards the petulant, childish creature. It was as though their relative positions had been in some mysterious way reversed. During their two days together she had been the superior, and he had felt himself at the mercy of her scornful, sharp-eyed youth. Now, he knew not how or why, fate seemed to have restored him to something of the man's natural advantage, combined, for once, with the impulse to use it. "'Your sister, I suppose, has been always happy in charity,' he said. "'Dear, yes,' said Rose irritably. "'Anything that has two legs and is ill, that is all Catherine wants to make her happy.' "'And you want something quite different, something more exciting?' he asked, his diplomatic tone showing that he felt he dared something in thus pressing her, but dared it at least with his wits about him. Rose met his look irresolutely, a little tremor of self-consciousness creeping over her. "'Yes, I want something different,' she said in a low voice, and paused. Then, raising herself energetically, she clasped her hands round her knees. "'But it's not idleness that I want. I want to work, but the things I was born for. I can't have patience with old women. 
but I could slave all day and all night to play the violin. "'You want to give yourself up to study, then, and live with musicians?' he said quietly. She shrugged her shoulders by way of answer, and began nervously to play with her rings. That underself, which was the work and the heritage of her father in her, and which, beneath all the wilfulnesses and defiances of the other self, held its own moral debates in its own way, well out of Catherine's sight generally, began to emerge, wooed into the light by his friendly gentleness. "'But it's all so difficult, you see,' she said despairingly. "'Papa thought it wicked to care about anything except religion. "'If you'd lived, of course I should never have been allowed to study music. "'It has been all mutiny so far, every bit of it, whatever I've been able to do.' "'He would have changed with the times,' said Langham. "'I know he would,' cried Rose. "'I've told Catherine so a hundred times. "'People, good people, think quite differently about art now, don't they, Mr. Langham?' She spoke with perfect naivety. He saw more and more of the child in her, in spite of that one striking development of her art. "'They call it the handmaid of religion,' he answered, smiling. Rose made a little face. "'I shouldn't,' she said, with frank brevity. "'But then there's something else. You know where we live, the very ends of the earth, seven miles from a station in the very loneliest valley of all Westmoreland. What's to be done with a fiddle in such a place?' "'Of course, ever since Papa died I've just been plotting and planning to get away. "'But there's the difficulty,' and she crossed one white finger over another as she laid out her case. "'That house where we live has been lived in by Laban's ever since the flood. "'Horrid set they were, I know, because I can't even make Mamma or even Catherine talk about them. "'But still, when Papa retired he came back and bought the old place from his brother. "'Such a dreadful, dreadful mistake!' cried the child, letting her hands fall over her knee. "'Had he been so happy there?' "'Happy!' and Rose's lip curled. "'His brothers used to kick and cuff him. His father was awfully unkind to him. He never had a day's peace till he went to school. And after he went to school he never came back for years and years and years, till Catherine was fifteen. What could have made him so fond of it?' And again, looking despondently into the fire, she pondered that far-off perversity of her father's. "'Blood has strange magnetisms.' said Langham, seized, as he spoke, by the pensive prettiness of the bent head and neck, and they show themselves in the oddest ways. "'Then I wish they wouldn't,' she said irritably. "'But that isn't all. He went there, not only because he loved that place, but because he hated other places. I think he must have thought,' and her voice dropped, "'he wasn't going to live long. He wasn't well when he gave up the school, and then we could grow up there safe without any chance of getting into mischief.' Catherine says he thought the world was getting very wicked and dangerous and irreligious, and that it comforted him to know that we should be out of it. Then she broke off suddenly. "'Do you know,' she went on wistfully, raising her beautiful eyes to her companion, "'after all he gave me my first violin.' Langham smiled. "'I like that little inconsequence,' he said. "'Then, of course, I took to it like a duck to water, and it began to scare him that I loved it so much.' He and Catherine only loved religion, and us, and the poor. But he always took it away on Sundays. Then I hated Sundays, and would never be good on them. One Sunday I cried myself nearly into a fit on the dining-room floor, because I mightn't have it. Then he came in, and he took me up, and he tied a Scotch plaid round his neck, and he put me into it, and 
carried me away right up on it to the hills, and he talked to me like an angel. He asked me not to make him sad before God that he'd give me that violin. So I never screamed again on Sundays. Her companion's eyes were not quite as clear as before. "'Poor little naughty child,' he said, bending over her. "'I think your father must have been a man to be loved.' She looked at him, very near to weeping, her face all working with a soft remorse. "'Oh, so he was, so he was. If he'd been hard and ugly to us, why, it would have been much easier for me. But he was so good. And there was Catherine, just like him, always preaching to us what he wished. You see what a chain it's been, what a weight. And as I must struggle, must, because I was I, to get back into the world on the other side of the mountains, and do what all the dear wicked people there were doing, why, I've been a criminal all my life. And that isn't exhilarating always." And she raised her arm, and let it fall beside her with the quick, over-tragic emotion of nineteen. "'I wish your father could have heard you play, as I heard you play yesterday,' he said gently. She started. "'Did you hear me, that Wagner?' He nodded, smiling. She still looked at him, her lips slightly open. "'Do you want to know what I thought? I have heard much music, you know.' He laughed into her eyes, as much as to say, "'I'm not quite the mummy you thought me, after all.' And she coloured slightly. "'I have heard every violinist of any fame in Europe play, and play often, and it seemed to me that with time and work, you might play as well as any of them." The slight flush became a glow that spread from brow to chin. Then she gave a long breath and turned away, her face resting on her hand. "'And I can't help thinking,' he went on, marvelling inwardly at his own role of mentor, and his strange enjoyment of it, that if your father had lived till now, and had gone with the times a little, as he must have gone, he would have learnt to take pleasure in your pleasure, and to fit your gift somehow into his scheme of things." "'Catherine hasn't moved with the times,' said Rose, doubtfully. Langham was silent. Gaucherie seized him again when it became a question of discussing Mrs. Ellesmere. His own view was so inconveniently emphatic. "'And you think,' she went on, "'you really think, without being too ungrateful to Papa and too unkind to the old Leyburn ghosts?' and the little laugh danced through the vibrating voice. "'I might try and get them to give up, Burwood. I might struggle to have my way. I shall, of course I shall. I never was a meek martyr, and never shall be. But one can't help having qualms, though one doesn't tell them to one's sisters and cousins and aunts. And sometimes—' She turned her chin round on her hand, and looked at him with a delicious, shy impulsiveness. "'Sometimes a stranger sees clearer. Do you think me a monster, as Catherine does?' Even as she spoke her own words startled her, the confidence, the abandonment of them. But she held to them bravely, only her eyelids quivered. She had absurdly misjudged this man, and there was a warm penitence in her heart. How kind he had been, how sympathetic! He rose with her last words, and stood leaning against the mantelpiece, looking down upon her gravely, with the air, as it seemed to her, of her friend, her confessor. Her white, childish brow, the little curls of bright hair upon her temples, her parted lips, the pretty folds of her muslin dress, the little foot on the fender. Every detail of the picture impressed itself once for all. Langham will carry it with him to his grave. "'Tell me,' 
he said again, smiling divinely as though to encourage him. "'Tell me quite frankly, down to the bottom, what you think?' The harsh noise of an opening door in the distance, and a gust of wind sweeping through the house, voices and steps approaching. Rose sprang up, and for the first time during all the latter part of their conversation felt a sharp sense of embarrassment. "'How early you are, Robert!' she exclaimed, as the study door opened, and Robert's wind-blown head and tall form, wrapped in an Inverness cape, appeared on the threshold. "'Is Catherine tired?' "'Rather,' said Robert, the slightest gleam of surprise betraying itself on his face. "'She has gone to bed, and told me to ask you to come and say good-night to her.' "'You got my message about not coming, from old Martha?' asked Rose. "'I met her on the common.' "'Yes, she gave it to us at the church door.' He went out again into the passage to hang up his greatcoat. She followed, longing to tell him that it was pure accident that took her to the study, but she could not find words in which to do it, and could only say good-night a little abruptly. "'How tempting that fire looks!' said Robert, re-entering the study. "'Were you very cold, Langham, before you lit it?' "'Very,' said Langham, smiling, his arm behind his head, his eyes fixed on the blaze. "'But I have been delightfully warm and happy since.' End of Book 2, Chapter 13